Amen. Good morning, everyone. We are studying Acts chapter 5. Well, more than that. Uh, We're studying the book of Acts here at the end of ordinary time, which is what they call it in the Christian calendar, the last part of the year before Advent begins. So you have a study guide today, if you like that sort of thing, on brown paper with fill in the blanks, and and ordinary time is the first answer. So if you hate study guides, and then, you know, just put that to the side and and, and act like you never saw that. Um, We're going to take something we don't do, but every once in a while, we're going to take an academic approach to these verses today. We're going to go to school on these verses today because they include so many characters that reoccur in the New Testament, so many themes and lessons that I thought we'd just do ourselves a disservice if we didn't really go to school and do this Bible study style. So if you like that, this is your morning. If you don't, you got a study guide. Okay, so um, so we got, uh, we got that going today, and we're going to go to school on these verses. It won't just help us understand Acts. It'll help you understand all the New Testament that you'll ever read after this. So let's get rolling. We're going to... See, between services, a Mac user touched my PC. (laughs) And he gave his Mac cooties to the machine. So we're going to hope this works the whole time. All right. So so what we're seeing there is, is not a good sign. There we go. Okay. We've got the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible is what we're going to be using this morning. That's the NRSV. If you've got a Bible or you can get one on your phone there, you want to follow along. This is uh, most seminaries' favorite study Bible. So that's the translation we'll be using this morning. Okay. Let's start in where we were last week because we were in Acts chapter 5 last week. Remember, the apostle Peter got arrested, right, for uh, preaching about Jesus right on the temple doorstep. So... Uh, But an angel came and rescued him and the other apostles from jail. So when they started their trial, they went to fetch them and they weren't there. There was a guard standing outside the door. The prison cell was locked, but there was no one inside. So that started a big stir until someone came into the trial and said, hey, those guys that you think escaped from prison, they didn't run very far. They're actually right outside preaching about Jesus again. So they went and had them rearrested and brought in, and they put them back on trial. Well, we left off last week. The high priest had just said, didn't we tell you never again to preach in this man's name? Yet here you are again, the same day, uh, spreading Jesus throughout Jerusalem and trying to make us the ones responsible for his death. And Peter answered last week, uh, that's because we cannot obey any human authority. We must obey God. And we're going to pick up right there because that's not all that Peter said. Peter, being diplomatic, says, uh, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Peter says, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. So the priest just said, you're trying to make us responsible for Jesus' death. And Peter basically says, "Uh uh-huh. And then, interesting phrasing, hanging him on a tree. Why does Peter say that instead of hanging him on a cross? That's because Peter isn't just talking about the crucifixion. He's also talking about their beliefs about the crucifixion. He's going back and picking up an ancient verse from Deuteronomy, which was written 1,200 years before this trial. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says, 
When someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So in the minds of the people who saw the crucifixion, they might have thought, okay, he's hung up. We know from our Bible that that means he's cursed by God. Peter is saying, well, if that's true then why did God raise him from the dead? Peter's saying, you guys are misapplying that scripture from Deuteronomy. Jesus isn't cursed by God just because he was hanged on a cross. Otherwise, God wouldn't have raised him from the dead. Now, the thing I could never understand reading this passage and passages like it is, why don't the high priests ever say, oh, God did not. God did not raise Jesus from the dead. Stop saying that. That's ridiculous. I think that would be very easy for them to say, yet they never seem to say it in these passages. Why not? I've got two guesses as to why not. The first I'm only so-so on, but I'm a scientist, so I have to put all the options up um, by training. So first option is that because the, cru- the resurrection story of Jesus is, is right at this time so popular among the common people, rumors of it are everywhere, that these priests don't want to get on the people's wrong side by saying, oh, that's just a hoax and treat it like a UFO sighting that'll just pass over if they ignore it. They don't want to upset the public. I'm only so-so on that one. This next guess as to why they don't uh, deny the resurrection, I think I believe in more. And it has to do with who's on this council. So this council, this Sanhedrin that does this stuff, is actually made up of two warring parties. They have the Democrats and the Republicans. Okay, no, but I mean... It's hard for us to relate to the idea of having, being ruled by two warring factions, isn't it? So they ha- they're being ruled by two warring factions called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, you're sitting there right now thinking, oh my gosh, I hear this term every time I hear preaching, every time I read the Bible. Well, after today, you're actually going to know who these are and what the big deal is. So Pharisees and Sadducees, let's get this guy straight. Pharisees, first of all, were few in number on that council. On that council of high priests, there weren't a a whole lot of them. Most of them were Sadducees. However, the Pharisees were more popular with common people. Working class and lower class people were more excited about Pharisees. Um, and, And that's why they were more popular because there's more working class and poor people. Sadducees were more popular among wealthy people, but in the Roman Empire, there weren't very many wealthy people. And so that's where the popularity breaks down. Also, Pharisees were intolerant of Roman rule. They hated that the Romans ruled Palestine and they preached against it a lot. Whereas the Sadducees were tolerant of Roman rule and even cooperated with them, which probably explains why there were so many and they were so powerful because they were cooperating with their conqueror. But that also led to them not being as popular with the people. Here's, uh, when the Pharisees read the scriptures, they read everything we currently read and call the Old Testament. They read Genesis to Malachi, and they believed it all came from God, which really affected their beliefs, because uh, Sadducees only really believed the first five books came to us from God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The rest of that stuff, I don't really know what they thought about it, but they didn't read it too much. So, here's, the, here's where it gets key. Pharisees believe in things like the eternal soul, resurrection of the dead. They believe in angels. They believe in demons, and they look for a Messiah or a Savior. Whereas Sadducees 
do not believe in the eternal soul. They do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in angels or demons, and they do not look for a Messiah. The reason why I think they don't deny the resurrection is because this is a powder keg. These guys are in danger of fighting amongst themselves every single time they sit down together. So what they really want to do is they want to get stop Peter and the church, but they don't want to wind up fighting amongst themselves. So anytime the church brings up that Jesus is resurrected, these guys just sit quietly. Because they start talking, they're going to start fighting. So they just don't say anything. I have some support for that. Later in the book of Acts, a different apostle, Paul, also gets put on trial by these guys. And watch what he's able to do with them with one sentence. Acts chapter 23. When Paul noticed, he's on trial, just like Peter is today. When Paul noticed that some were Sadducees and other were Pharisees, he called out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul was only sort of on trial for that. He was really on trial for starting a riot, preaching about Jesus. But Paul walks in and says, the reason why I'm on trial today is because I believe in Jesus who was resurrected from the dead. That's all he says. Watch what happens. When he said this, dissension began between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angel or spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. Then a great clamor arose, and certain scribes of the Pharisee group stood up and contended, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoken to him? When the dissension became violent, so now they're fist fighting amongst themselves, The tribune, the Romans, were standing off to the side, fearing that they would tear Paul to pieces, ordered the soldiers to go down, take him by force, and bring him back to the barracks. So the Romans trot Paul in. Paul says, I'm just here because I believe in the resurrection. These guys start tearing each other apart. The Romans are like, oh, forget it. Get him out of here. Good grief. So you see how easily he got them to fight amongst themselves just by using the word resurrection. I believe that's why when Peter uses it, they don't say a word. So Peter takes advantage of the silence. He says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness for sins. Peter says, not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he brought him to his right side to rule over creation with him, meaning all of you guys who were part of killing Jesus have made a terrible mistake. But if you would like to be forgiven for that mistake, you can have forgiveness through the same Jesus that you just put to death. Certainly that made the council extremely angry, but Peter keeps talking, as Peter always does. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Basically here Peter's saying, we have seen the resurrection of the Messiah, but not only that, the Holy Spirit of God knows who the Messiah is. And anybody who was actually following God would have been taught that by the Holy Spirit. He's suggesting the reason the council doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah is because they're not really following God. That probably angered them greatly. But here is a bit of Christian theology that comes from this passage that's very important to us. And that is that the Holy Spirit shows us truth. Myself, really none of us, are smart enough just to look at the world and instantly know 
what is right and what is wrong. To see all the confusion in our world, uh, none of us really has, can look at it and say, oh, it, I know what to do about that. It's all too complex. But God, through his Holy Spirit, teaches us truth and shows us a way. And that's what, and that's what we believe. Therefore, that should make us, cause three things to happen in us. First thing, it should make us humble. It should make us humble, not proud. Because this makes us admit we're not smart enough to run our lives and run the world. If God didn't teach us the truth, we wouldn't know it. It should make us humble. Next thing, it should make us secure. It should make us secure in our relationship with God. Because that means when we're not getting it right, that God already knows we couldn't get it right, except what he teaches us. Therefore, he's not out to get us because he knew before we started we couldn't get it right. As long as we're still following God and trying to hear from his spirit and do what it says, we're still with him and we're still okay. The only way you're in trouble with God is if you're ignoring God or if you hear from God and then try to do the opposite. Other than that, we should be secure that he knows we can only do what we're taught and we're just trying to learn. And the last thing it should do is make us compassionate. It should make us compassionate when we encounter someone who doesn't believe like we do it's usually not because they're on a conspiracy against Jesus. It's usually not because they're stupid. It's usually not because they're evil. It's because they haven't had an encounter yet with the living God to learn the truth. And we should be compassionate because if we hadn't had an encounter with God, we'd believe just like they do. So this gives us a takeaway from this passage that we can't argue and convince people into Christianity. They must uh, have an encounter with the real God. This is why you see Jesus uh, eating with prostitutes and uh, corrupt tax collectors and notorious sinners. Jesus is overlooking how they're currently living so that they can meet God through him. And then that encounter with God will change their life as they see the truth. Jesus doesn't say to them, Okay, stop prostituting, stop collecting taxes using corrupt methods, and, and, and stop all this sin, and then I'll come eat with you. He comes and eats with them, knowing if they encounter God, they'll change. That's the only thing that changes people. So we have to be a church, then, that emulates the methods of Jesus. We will, for who knows how long, have to have people here among us, in our community, whose lives aren't the lives God would have them lead. But we overlook that until they can have an encounter with the living Christ. And then that will change them. We don't argue with people at the door of the church making them change before they can come before God. It's a different way of looking at it. Now, however, these priests on this council think they already know everything there is to know about God, so they hate this answer. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So now they're going to do the same thing to Peter and the apostles they just did to Jesus. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put out for a short time. So this is one of those moments uh, that happens. Every council, every leadership group has the grand old man. If you've ever served on a leadership group, you probably know, you probably had a grand old man. He's the old guy or old, or old gal, and they, they don't talk very much. 
But when they talk, people stop and hear what they have to say because they're known for wisdom. Remember in your uh, American history class, the Constitution Convention? You know, all those young and middle-aged guys forming a new nation, writing a constitution, and there in the room sat the elderly Benjamin Franklin. They say he didn't say much, but when he spoke, everyone stopped and listened because he was known to be wise and, and a genius. Gamaliel is kind of their Benjamin Franklin. So, Benj- so Benjamin Franklin. So Gamaliel stands up and he says, let's put these guys out for a minute. Gamaliel comes up off and on in scripture. He is considered the best Pharisee there ever was. When Gamaliel died elsewhere in history, uh, they wrote this about him. All the glory of the law, true purity and separateness died with him. They're basically saying everything it takes to be a good Pharisee died when Gamaliel died. He was the last of the great ones. So he has the apostles sent out and then he does what only the grand old man can do. He walks them through history. He has been there. Here's what he says. He said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up. This is a different Judas than what you're thinking. He rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So Gamaliel walks them through the history of these Jewish rebellions. This also now tells us why Rome was so willing to execute Jesus. Ever been confused on why Pontius Pilate says, I don't understand these charges. I don't find anything wrong with Jesus. And then kills him anyway? It's because they had so many Jewish rebellions that Pontius Pilate thinks, well, better safe than sorry. We have a lot of this problem down here. Go ahead and kill him. When in doubt, execute. So that is the Roman attitude. They'll do anything to hang on to power. So Gamaliel walks him through this. Then he gives this advice. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because this, if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found to be fighting against God. Now, if we read this passage too fast. We might walk away from this and go, oh, Gamaliel was a good guy. He suggests that the disciples might actually be followers of God. He suggests they should be turned loose. Gamaliel must be on the Christian side. But that would be a mistake and a misunderstanding of who he is. Gamaliel's stories were only about false messiahs whom the Romans killed and whose followers then scattered and their movements died all on their own. Gamaliel and everyone on that council believes that Jesus is a false messiah who's just been crushed by the Romans. And Gamaliel's just saying, you're just going to add more fuel to the fire if you keep executing these people. Their shepherd is gone, hanged on a cross. Give it a little more time. They'll scatter on their own. Gamaliel believes God will destroy the church. So they don't have to get into any more controversy by executing Peter. And the church just benefited from a speech given by one of their enemies. 
They were convinced by him. And when they'd called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Not scot-free. He had them whipped and they, they told him to stop this Jesus talk, but they let them go. They're free again because one of their enemies gave a speech. Now, this is something, this is a takeaway you don't want to uh, miss. You never know who or what God may use to accomplish his purpose. This week, somewhere in the world, someone who doesn't think a thing about Jesus or may even be hostile toward Jesus may do something that God will use to accomplish his purpose. We see this all the time in scripture. The enemies of God become the unwilling servants of his hand. Someone in your own life may do something today that actually sets you free to do your Christian work even though they don't believe it. You never know who or what God may use. He can use anything and anyone because the whole world is his. Watch for that dynamic in the world. Now, what does this mean for people who follow Jesus when it gets you into nothing but trouble? The disciples healed someone and got arrested. Then they preached about Jesus in the temple. They got arrested again. Then on trial, they told the story of his forgiveness. And what they get? Whipped. What does this mean? Here's what they thought it meant. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. When they got whipped, they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Sometimes uh, we make the mistake of telling ourselves, if we preach the good news of Jesus, the world's going to love it. If we do a good job of explaining who God is and the forgiveness of Jesus, the world's going to embrace it. They're going to embrace the church. They're going to embrace us. And, uh, and we're probably wrong about that. Because if, if you're part of another religion and all your power comes from that religion, then the religion of Jesus is not going to be something you're excited about. All those priests on the council... Their power came from something else, so they were not excited about the spread of the Jesus movement. If all your money comes from treating people in unchristian ways, then anything that tries to make the world safer and more bearable for your financial victims is going to be your enemy. We all know there are people in this world and in our own community who make their living off of lies, and they make their living off of the suffering and the misery of others just like this council of priests. And while we'll tell ourselves if we live a good Christian life, we'll always have peace, we're probably, probably wrong about that. Sometimes my life of peace just means that I'm going along with the world. While the world exploits people and abuses children and spreads disease and mis- minis- misery and perversion, if I just go along with it, then the world doesn't trouble me and I'll have a form of peace. If I actually try to do the things that Jesus and his church in the book of Acts did to help the oppressed, to stop the spread of misery and perversion, to challenge wealth and power, then wealth and power and misery and perversion come to stop us, just like it came to stop these apostles. That's why they rejoiced. They knew they were finally pushing back on the gates of hell. They knew they were finally pushing on the gates of hell 
when the gates of hell pushed back. So this is our last takeaway this morning. Perhaps we aren't really living the Christian life until the world tries to stop us. Okay, everyone. We really got to be careful with this one. Right? We really have to be careful with this takeaway and what we do with this. I am not talking about Christians behaving badly. I, I, this is, is, I'm not talking about when it's the church that's trying to destroy the weak in society, when it's the church using hateful words and the church using violence and the world tries to stop the church and bring peace. That's not, not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about when the church is trying to save those who are weak in society as Jesus did, when the church is trying to spread peace, when the church is trying to share forgiveness and the world comes at us with violence and, and hateful words and tries to stop us. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about when we do evil and the world stands up for good. Oh, good heavens, no. I'm talking about when we're trying to do good and the world tries to stop us with evil. So what would you do if you tried to share Jesus and you got arrested? What would you do if you got set free and preached again and got arrested again? What would you do if you stood in trial and told them about the forgiveness and they flogged you? What would you do next? Here's what the disciples did. Every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. They went right back out and they did it some more. We said this last week, but perhaps the answer is, if you're in trouble for doing good, to do it again. I don't know who your enemy or who your obstacle may be, but I want to suggest that perhaps you just go back and do it again. When your ex-spouse tries to make it hard for you to bring joy and love to your children, right after they're finished tormenting you or suing you or talking bad about you, go back and do it some more. More joy and more love. Don't let someone else cut you off. When your workplace tries to discourage you from treating your customers fairly, treating your vendors with honesty and truth, right after they're done calling you out, go back and do it some more. More honesty and more fairness and more truth. When your culture penalizes you for living the Christian life, and here I'm probably mostly talking to high school students, college students, single people. When you're in that stage of life, Christianity has a lot to say about sexuality, about singleness, about drugs, about drunkenness, about cheating and plagiarism, right? And when you don't participate in those things, that culture has a way of freezing you out putting you on the outside of the social circle, moving you to the edge. If you'll start cheating and drinking and sleeping around, they'll bring you right back, but as long as you're not, you're pushed out. This passage suggests that you should rejoice that you finally were living so rightly. Our evil social system had to address you and try to do something to stop you and to get up next morning and live more rightly than you did before. 
Do it again. So they prayed the Psalms there in the temple. Psalm 15, they probably would have got to about every week or every other week. So I thought we'd pray it together, and we'd pray it like they did. They did an antiphonal prayer where they'd go back and forth. So the prayer will be on the screen, and and you'll do the bold, and I'll do some of the bold parts with you. Let us stand together and pray this prayer they would have prayed. Be very thoughtful about the words that you're saying. You'll do the bold. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Whoever walks without fault speaks the truth from his heart. Whoever does not slander with his tongue who casts no slur on a friend who looks with scorn on the wicked who keeps an oath whatever the cost and accepts no bribes against the innocent. Let us pray the prayer that Christ our Lord has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. 